<laughs> oh, please, spare us. We just run a humble tavern. We are no threat to you. Ha, weak, just like every human. And so we shall make an example out of you. Kill me if you must, warlord. But I beg you, please, spare the life of my wife and our newborn child. Worthless and pathetic to the end. How ironic your deaths will make us stronger. There will come a time where you and your kind will be brought to account for your crimes. You will know justice, monster. You hear me? <laughs> Backbone at last. But this is nothing more than the empty rhetoric of a dying people. You speak of justice? All have fled before me. There is not one among you with the courage to face my might. Where is your justice now? Greetings, gentlemen. Is there a problem? Oh, Paladin, praise the light. Gods, kill him. Ah, Harry, Templars judgment. Next. So be it, Paladin. My warhacks versus your light forged blade. To the death. My forged blade? Oh, this old thing. Oh, I just carry that around because it looks cool. I much prefer my hammer of wrath. <laughs> You have won nothing. Hmm, not quite nothing. Twenty gold coins and studded braces. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Paladin. Bless you. Bless you. Yes, yes. Look, he doesn't drop the scourge boots I want. Um, he respawns in an hour. I'll try again then. What? Oh, look, I'll just be out in the tranquil valley until then, picking yellow rose thorns for my alchemy potions. Uh, just give me a hollow if he pops back up again. You're going to pick flowers, oh great holy knight? Well, it's a time sink, I know, but I want those boots. It must be the 300th time I've killed him and they still haven't dropped. It's total bullshit. I... I don't understand. Do you think the orc invasion is some kind of game to you? Aren't you going to at least let me pour you a mug of ale for saving my family's life? Mayhaps you want some of our famous Lakeshire ale. It gives back 200 mana and buffs agility for 10 for one hour. No, I'm trying to go 100 days without drinking. You get the sobriety achievement, as well as a blue-horned mythic horse in my mailbox as reward. Good day, sir. Revenge of the 80s Kids has been rated P for Podcast.
Justin, we have a problem. Oh, for God's sake, not you as well, Leo. No, it... no, seriously, come in the living room. We're supposed to be doing the podcast, and, well, right. look at him hunched there over that controller oh, shouting at the television. Die, Nasty oh. Orcs, die, die, oh. die, hack, 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 murder, death. He, he, he's not healthy, that's not good. No, it's not good, and he's been like that now for 72 hours straight. He hasn't even written an opening gag for this show, which is why I'm having to do it. We'd better get him, because otherwise we just right. won't be doing a podcast. Okay, okay. I'll just, I'll, I'll approach him. Right. I'm not going to make any sudden moves. You just hang back there. Ian, 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 it's time to do the podcast, Ian. Ian? I do. Ian. What? Time to put the controller down. I'm about to ding level 57. Uh, no, no, you're not. You're going to come and do the podcast with us. Me and Justin have had a talk, and oh. we think it might be better for you if you took a few yeah. hours or whatever away from the console. Look, I do not have a problem, gentlemen. Well, there's a first time for everything, so there we go. Uh, but you do. Uh, Justin, just just okay. switch off the plug. Yeah. I, I hadn't saved. Fortunately, he was a camera, <laughs> so my character is still exactly where I left him. Anyway, uh, so uh, what's the uh, purpose of today's meetings, Leo? Uh, well, uh, funnily enough, uh, now that we've got you away from playing video games, I thought we might spend a little time, uh, coincidentally and not uh, in any kind of a setup, talking about video games oh. for a oh. bit. I was, uh, I was looking are, forward to dancing on the grave of the 90s. You said we could do that next week. Uh, well, I guess this is a way of doing it because, um, because of course the 2000s, uh, up to 2000, well, up to present day are, represent a kind of watershed in video game history and that it was a time when video games moved from being largely game-esque experiences, uh, to being, having the ability to become over time more and more cinematic. Uh, and so I thought we might celebrate that thing as we are about genre entertainment. And, uh, you know, we've done a lot of films recently. Let's uh, kick back and, and talk about uh, digital entertainment. That That's what I figured. Uh, very well. But uh, could I perhaps throw a complete span of the works by opening up by going, has it been a universally good thing moving towards cinematics and, and away from kind of defining things by gameplay? That's not a spanner, for drama is the engine upon which our wheel turns. And this is a question we shall address. Uh, but first of all, we should probably set the stage. Uh, 1999, the year before the, the things started to really go. I mean, there is one small thing that I would like to sort of talk about briefly, which I think we could all get behind uh, to begin with. Now, of course, I think that the, the video game that really put the cinematicness of video games into the the frame as something desirable was um, Metal Gear Solid, which came out, you know, several years previous to the advent of the uh, millennium. Well, whilst, well, you know, well, well, whilst this is true, and you know, obviously things date, but well, whilst this is true, isn't it? Wasn't it just kind of part of a great wave of games that come out uh, by the same publisher? Silent Hill came out at roughly the same time as Metal Gear Solid, and that one had a horror. Even the original one had a kind of horror cinematic vibe to it. I mean, a lot of video game makers are film fans as well. Yeah, and I think, I think uh, yes, Silent Hill and Metal Gear Solid uh, do demonstrate 
the sort of line the, where we're pushing. They're pushing at the limits of that that technological generation. And in both cases, I think that you don't so much end up with a cinematic experience as much as sort of a video game with a funny rubber nose on. That's the way I've kind of come to think of it. The way that Hideo Kojima did it in Metal Gear Solid was he put in, you know, 20 minute cutscenes with uh, bits of stock footage of nuclear missiles taking off and stuff. I think horror was always something like if you could scare people, then uh, that was something that made people feel more involved. Um, I mean, you know, it's not that there hadn't been sort of narrative entertainment. I mean, up until, you know, this point where it starts to mix, point and click adventures had had their time, of course, and they were very narrative with puzzles. Well, it, it, indeed, you know. RPGs of all stripes. Hmm. Well, RPGs are, are they, are they cinematic? I mean, you know, is that, is that well, what it's sort uh, of back in the 90s, I mean, you would have the cinematic cut scene, which was a specially rendered sequence denoting an important thing that was going on plot wise, I suppose. So yeah, so I mean, you had bits and bobs. People obviously wanted this. This is what we're saying. There was a hunger to move towards that, and uh, and, and the new generation promised even more stuff uh, that would that would bring us closer to this golden age. When, of course, in 1999, uh, the Dreamcast was released to universal acclaim. And the long shadow of the PS2 swept into the nursery, and the monolith shadow smothered it in its crib. Uh, the Dreamcast, because they were advertising the Dreamcast in official PlayStation magazine, and they had it was a black and white picture of someone urinating into an open lid PS1, and it was just like you know the Dreamcast is just going to piss all over this console. It's so much more powerful than the PS1. The PS1 was never a powerful console, even in its day. What it had was a was a skip full of games. That was always its selling point. So. The fact we had a higher powered console than the PlayStation 1 was not a good thing. And the PlayStation 2 was coming over the horizon like a monster. And everyone was looking towards that because it was backwards compatible. So you didn't have to give anything up for the upgrade. Yeah, I think that the Dreamcast had several disadvantages. One, it really wanted to be the new sort of online experience. They made a big thing about it's got a modem in 1999. You can enjoy anything you couldn't enjoy on a 56k metered connection. <laughs> Woot! Uh, so that didn't really play. Also, looking at the list of titles, they had like Street Fighter 3, which eventually migrated to PS2 and Xbox, but it was an exclusive obviously at the time. Tony Hawk's Pro Skater only ever came out on the Dreamcast. Tom Clancy's Rainbow Six Rogue Spear came out on the Dreamcast and then eventually, uh, quite embarrassingly, ported back to the PS1 in 2001. Resident Evil 3 Nemesis uh, was on the Dreamcast. Pokemon Yellow, South Park Chef's Love Shack, Tomb Raider The Last Revelation. I mean, you know, when it comes to software lineups... Yeah, well, there was a there was a sorry report. It wasn't all bad. Justin, uh, you have been silent thus far. Did you not partake in this late nineties? Um, no, I was interested in like the early wave, and then I took a gap. I just took a break, really. I um, I didn't really. I, my friends were kind of all that kind of. I got a PlayStation One, but it would be a while before I would get kind of into that. I didn't get a PlayStation Two. It'd be a while before I get into the next one. So it took me a time, really. I was. I guess I was busy with my career, throwing my creative endeavours into that, and and that grew. I, I think as the 
as the scope of the games got, became more cinematic and larger, I got more interested. Um, so at this stage, like at the cusp of, of, of this time, I think I probably was playing some PlayStation 1 games, but I wasn't super serious with it. I mean, it, it occurs to me, and it's, it's really interesting, actually, that on December the 29th, 1999, the Dreamcast got the only title that really set it apart from the other consoles of the generation and indeed evolved a new sort of model of gameplay. And that game was called Shenmue. Uh, do you know of this game, either of you? Of course no. I do. I, I, you had a Dreamcast and I visited your house very frequently oh, in the early noughties. I was not, I did not know that we had sat next to each other and played it. Well, uh, oh, I, have, I watched you work a day job shifting crates. Yes. Yes. Okay. Justin's laughing. Uh, explain further, uh, Ian. Well, I suppose the overarching storyline is that you're like some sort of martial arts training little little young dude and your master is killed and then it's basically you have to go get the bad guy. Uh, but not in this game because this is a trilogy. So the first game is just about you getting enough money to leave town. Uh, whilst you are harassed by low-level goons and and various, and, and there's like plenty old trainers teaching you more moves as you go and things like that. It, it was a, it was a bit sandboxy, but there was various jobs you could get, and one of them was working in in the docks, and you would have you. It was a real-time game, so day night, day night, and you had scheduled hours where you would have to go walk up, work on a forklift and move crates around, uh, and how many crates you could move would affect your pay, I believe. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I should I should possibly mention, and I think this is definitely worth uh, talking about because I hadn't really put it back together again in my head. But Shenmue wasn't an open world game, but I think later, if the designer was probably honest with himself, when open world became a thing, which isn't for a couple of years yet, he probably went, "Oh yeah, maybe I should have done that," um, because. It kind of forced you through these gutters into, um, you know, at first you're doing one thing and then you and then eventually, yes, you get this job down at the docks because you know that there's where well, you can earn some money. Plus, you can find stuff out and get involved in some fights and you do some some fighting and stuff. But it it tries to suggest what you should do next. And if you don't happen to pick up on the clue, then you just go around in this cycle of going to work, coming home and going to bed day after day, until you work out what you're supposed to do next. But really, it was an ideal model for an open-world game. It's just that he didn't, the guy who wrote it didn't think, because at this point it wasn't a thing. It, so, it, yeah. It, it did have some frustrating quirks. I know once you actually got your ticket to leave town and a guy came along and ate it right in front of you. Was it quite gorgeous? Right. And then there was the other thing was the kind of framing mechanism for the, the trilogy, I suppose, was this strange, young, beautiful, ethereal woman who was Shenmue? Was she? Was she the, the titular character? I don't remember. No, but, she wasn't. At all, but she right. she was in the beginning of the game and she was sort of narrating it for you. But you don't actually meet her in the first game at all. She's in the other land, I assume. So we don't know what her relevance was, as far as I can, I can recall. No, uh, and they did get as far as Shenmue 2, I can tell you that, because I played that too. And of course, that has the problem of being a lot of middle. He does some more martial arts training, he works at a dojo in Japan. Well, the other thing you was, know. the other thing was, you know, that there was kind of this conceit that you could keep all the items you'd accrued in the first game. And it did. It would scan your memory card and then put in your inventory all the items you had from the first game, and then promptly mugged you and took them all away. 
Right, okay. <laughs> it kind of sounds like the Karate Kid, but over three long games. But, but you. Well, of course, it was only ever two because the right. third one didn't come out. So, uh, yeah. No, it's... So time wound on, 2000 came around, and uh, the notable thing, of course, about 2000 is that uh, the PlayStation 2 came out. Woo! And uh, the game that convinced me to get it was a very narrative, strong game. It was, was it, uh, oh, uh, Book of Shadows? No, no, something of Memory of Shadows. Book of Memory. Oh, Shadow of Memory, yes. That's that's it. It's some sort of, some sort of computer generated title anyway. Uh, We we get ahead of ourselves for that. I mean, the thing about it is, 2000's a bit of a weird year because it came out in, the PlayStation 2 was released in Japan, uh, on March the 4th, 2000. But it wasn't released in the UK until the end of November, nearly Christmas, uh, which is something which seems quite remarkable these days because the Internet was still in its infancy. And you, we've come to this point where people are like, oh, you know, Japan, oh, you know, they've become, Japan's become a thing that people are obsessed with. And what's happening in Japan that you have, like, there's a whole strand of stories on, like, uh, blogs like Kotaku about what's happening in Japan. And in this time, Japan was this mysterious place where they had crazy good electronic stuff, and that was about all you knew. So they could get away with a terrible launch window like that, where the, it's weird, the, the Japanese seem to be a lot, cooler in a way with because the playstation 4 which just came out last year launched in those territories after they launched in north america and europe right and japanese seemed okay with it not over the moon but then i mean it was a couple of months it wasn't you know nearly a year and i suppose on the other hand the xbox has been nearly a year the xbox one went to japan like two weeks ago we've had it for a year Nobody's wow. bought one. So, yeah, probably people still do get sore about these long launch windows. Um, but, yeah, so, I mean, the, the thing about it is because the PlayStation 2 was the first major player that was able to do it, not really much happened in that year, uh, in that in the world of cinematic video games. Uh, there's a couple of moments. Deus Ex came out for the PC in that year. Okay. Anyone played that? Nope. Uh, not the, no, not that version, no. Uh, the thing is, I was never into first-person shooters. I was never into any sports games or racing games. So there's whole swathes of genres I didn't really bother with very much. I was much more to my action, uh, adventure, sort of third-person. On which point, the original Hitman game came out in 2000. Which, which, which was much more of a sort of shoot-em-around game, uh, the first one. Not so much a stealthy, stealthy assassin game, as I know, understand it. Uh, the Hitman series has always had a problem that... They kind of didn't know it's Hitman should be a puzzle game. It should be a, like if you do this, then you do that, and then you do this. You could get in and out. Nobody even knows you're there, and the dude is dead, and nobody else knows anything about it. And for three games, they failed to design the game that way because they thought, yeah, but what if? But because I think probably a suit went, yeah. So when do you just shoot everybody? And they're like, well, it's not really that kind of game. No, it's called Hitman. You've got a gun. Therefore, shoot everybody. So they, no, they no, were like, there, there, there was always a solution to doing it with, with minimal or only target deaths. But it required, on some of the later levels, it required to have a knowledge you could only have by playing it through wrong the first time. 
like you know finding it's, it's that secret door that you can't see from the outside uh on the side of a castle and things like that to bypass tons and tons of patrolling troops well, I mean, I'm just going through the way that it's remembered in history, that most people say it's not really worth playing through the games for that super stealth because it doesn't really have any effect and, and you know, it doesn't make for a satisfying play experience. And apparently the one where they finally did it is called, like, Blood Money, I think it is. And they're there they actually managed to get the design right and everybody remembers that fondly. I didn't play that one, so I wouldn't be... Well, no, no, I think uh, Hitman 2 was the one where everyone said, oh, it's landed. Became, yeah, but thing. I played that and I can testify that it didn't, you know, I was trying to be extra stealthy all the time. And the problem was they had things like uh, you could get a disguise and there's no earthly reason why if you were just walking around acting casual that anyone would suspect that you were not. But every guard just knew and then you ended up shooting everybody in the place. And it's like that, that those were the things that rubbed you up the wrong way, you know, just like, what? What have you done? Why did you do that? So, yeah, it, it wasn't... Uh, I haven't played the later ones, but um, I have played games in which I have enjoyed that uh, stealthy crowd stuff, which we'll get to in a bit, but, uh, yeah, the Hitman games were not them. Moving on, yes. 2001, the first proper year of the PlayStation's PlayStation 2, uh, and the Xbox came around as well in 2001. And uh, wouldn't you know it, uh, I think the thing that everybody would probably remember from 2001 would be, um, of course, Serious Sam, the first encounter. No, no, I'm joking. Well, there's a few here, actually. Uh, what? There's a few memorable games here, actually. There are a few, but I think the one that stands out as uh, the watershed in gaming from 2001 is obviously GTA 3. Yeah. Yes. Uh, which is a criminal sandbox game. Uh, and it, it was just so amazing uh, to just get in a car and drive around and set up points on top of a building with your sniper rifle and then just go postal. Did anyone else do this or was it just me? <laughs> oh, no, you do. Well, I did it like once because uh, people kept saying it was great. And I... Well, no, what I did, I found a very particular point of a cliff I could stand on and I, I would aggro the police and the police start coming towards me. But the AI was so bad. They would drive off the edge of the cliff, they would run off the edge of the cliff, and they would all slump into the water and start drowning before me. And I would laugh. Anyone else do this? Is it just me? <laughs> uh, what can I say? I, I, uh, it's, I, I think we've all had our moments, I think, in Grand Theft Auto, and various things, I think. Yes, we, we, we've all picked up a prostitute and killed them. It's something you do in a game. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is the most notorious thing about uh, about uh, the Grand Theft Auto series is that that was possible, but not sort of in a way deliberately. It's like if you just picked a random person on the street and beat them to death, you could steal their money. And the prostitutes were based upon that character model. They were people who were on the streets. And yes. so if you beat if you beat a prostitute to death just the same as everyone else, you get quality in that, in that everyone can just be killed and slaughtered and endlessly respawning pedestrians. Indeed. But yes, of course I think the thing that probably pushed it over the edge was that you could pay prostitutes to go in the back of your car and make whoopee. It, uh, it was an extra thing. Hypocrisy of, of the slant on, you know, violence being incredibly acceptable 
and and uh, sex being a huge controversy. That's always been the case, though. Yeah. More, more famously, I think, with Grand Theft Auto 4. But we'll get to that eventually. Um, yeah, it, it's bizarre. But also, it, it's, it's kind of a game incentive to do it because it was the only way to get your health over 100. Right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So it was, it was like beneficial for actually picking up a prostitute, driving your car to a secrete spot, and then just rocking the suspension for a bit. Right. Uh, so yes, uh, notable, another notable game this year, Halo. Yeah. Yes. Um, I had a go at that. People seem to like it. Yeah, very popular. Apparently, uh, for, the, for shoot 'em ups, it's supposed to be the PC is the place to go, and everyone looks down on these, you know, mouth breathing, uh, first person shooters on the console, kiddies. Uh, that's the snobbery that, as I understand it. I don't know, I don't do first person shooters. Um, and uh, I think the other thing that we can't leave 2001 without noting, uh, at least tipping our hat to, is uh, Silent Hill 2. Yes. 2001, which, which is, I would argue is possibly one of the... It's, it is a watershed in narrative gaming. I think it's it's kind of, kind of the reviewer's pick, isn't it? It's always the one everyone refers to. It's become a bench standard. Um so yeah, the atmosphere is is it's a game where it sets atmosphere so important. Just doing icky things, because you're fighting enemies and you're fighting them with a stick. And this is what I quite like about it, because uh, to give my sort of monster scale of being scary, if you're fighting a giant spider like the kind you find in Lord of the Rings, it ceases to become scary because let's face it, that thing is going to tear your head off unless you're the main character. So. Uh, when in real life, if you actually found a spider that was, say, its body was, say, about the size of a shoe, and its legs kind of sprang out from that, that's terrifying. Because you can win this fight. You can get away from that. There's a lot more uncertainty going on. So in Summer Hill 2, you had enemies that you could beat by just, you know, bludgeoning them to death with a stick you'd found. And, and so there's a, there's a kind of messy, kind of almost domestic level of threat going on. You're not necessarily talking about creatures that are going to come out and rip your head off. In fact, people criticized Silent Hill 3 when it came out because uh, there's a young chick with some oozes. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, the thing about Silent Hill 2, I've got the HD re-render of it, and I've, I've played uh, maybe a third of it again, uh, is that it just leaves you alone. I mean, it, it, it's, got a ro- it's got the standard at this time, ropey survival horror control system where you rotate on the spot and then press forward to walk forward, which is, of course, the best way to control someone when they're being attacked by nasties. <laughs> you know, you want them to, like, have to stop moving to turn. You want that. That is definitely a great thing. Well, it's a great way to put um, suspense into an encounter, isn't it? Okay, yes. move, 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 move. <laughs> No, not that far round. Now I've got to turn the other way round. Ah! Um, yes, and then when you pressed backwards, they did one very slow and deliberate backward step. It's like, great! Backing away slowly, enshrined in gate <laughs> controls. Um, it, yeah, just, yeah. The we whole thing is just... We've all suffered it, us long-time gamers. <laughs> yeah. Steers like a is, cow. But the thing about it is that unlike other games that use that control system, Resident Evil, I'm looking at you. Uh, and in fact, you know, the other Silent Hills to a certain degree. This one kind of went, well, you've got a ropey control system and 
that's frustrating rather than scary. Hey, here's an idea. Let's just scare the crap out of people. You know, wherever you go, whatever you do, there's this huge section where you walk around a park. There are no enemies in the park. But one of the things the sound designer had great pleasure in doing is that every time you walked onto a new screen, there were random shouts, calls, whispers, rustles, squeaks, footsteps, eerie noises. It was just the whole thing. And you were, you were never sure when something was going to happen because then eventually, of course, something always did. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, this is what, what I think it, it uncovered this idea in much that has been written about it, that atmosphere is very much important in making that genre entertainment real. And I think eventually developers started to take that uh, to heart, which is which is a good thing. It's a partic- know, it's the particular tone of, of Silent Hill 2 because it's, it's not the, the world is malevolent. But it's not exclusively out to get you. It's out to get you in a sort of passive-aggressive sort of a way. Yes. But also this year, which we'll just note, Silent Hill 2, Sons of Liberty, the beginning of the Metal Gear... You mean Metal Gear Solid 2. Yes, so Metal Gear Solid 2, uh, Sons of Liberty. Uh, The the rot is beginning to set in with the epic long cutscenes and overly complicated storylines. And Revolver Ocelot changes sides for the third time. He will do it again later on. Um... And yes, and also famous for the bait and switch of everyone will come on to come back and play Solid Snake again, but turning out to have to play this 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 angel faced, uh, flaxen haired youth instead who's having girlfriend troubles. Jack, yeah. I want to talk to us about our relationship. I'm fighting ninjas with a sword. Is this really the best time? <laughs> yeah, I I remember after Metal Gear Solid, being all pumped for Metal Gear Solid 2, and then finding it a bit ho-hum. And and the, the thing about it is, weirdly, with Watershed Games, the rot starts to set in pretty quickly thereafter. I'm not sure quite what it is, but uh, we shall get to it, I think, with the Grand Theft Auto series as we go on. It definitely seems that once they have that moment, they seem unable to, to recapture the magic, as it were, let us let us move on to 2002, uh, in which we see the release of the GameCube. Yeah. Ooh. This is, this uh, is... And it's little tiny biscuit-shaped discs. And we definitely start to see that rot start to set in in some places. Now, I, I am going to quickly mention, uh, much to Ian's delight here, that in this year we got uh, Blood Omen 2. Yes. Well, I was going to say, uh, it's a game I quite like as far as Legacy of Kane games go, but as far as fans are concerned, it's the redhead, redhead stepchild of the series, bizarrely. But moving on. Oh, right. No, I was just going to say, this is kind of the, the, the Legacy of Kane and Blood Omen series defies this idea that sort of watershed moments can, can pass by and people are, by churning out, you know, Blood Omen 2 was the, was it the last or was it Defiance? That was the uh, Defiance was the last in about 2003, I think. Right. So, yeah. But this is these games, as you've already uh, stated before on the podcast, were dialogue heavy with tortuous plots. And, well, and then, you know, this, this, is why, this is why I quite like Blood Omen 3. It was it came out the, pretty much the same year as I think Sorry Ever came out the year before. It came out the same year, Sorry Ever 2. Sorry Ever 2 yeah. is you walk in between cutscenes. That's the game. There's a few puzzles along the way to slow you down, but that's it. 
Uh, and I was like, I appreciate this. I know the storyline backwards, so I'm loving this fan fiction you've just given me. Uh, but I felt that for players, they needed to go back towards more of a model of action and boss and uh, battle upgrades and just kind of have the lore there as a background and introduce lots of new characters and new settings. And Blood Omen 2 did that, but the fans hated it because it was a complete tangent that was nothing to do with the main plot they were following. And in fact, Defiance has to go to great lengths to try and tie it back into the series and doesn't succeed in every regard. So it's generally despised for being bad lore by the fans. It was like, no, this is what we needed. We needed fresh blood. We need new characters other than the same ones we cycle over and over again. Anyway, yeah, front over. I won't bore you with it all again. Uh, yeah, no, I just, yeah, but I just wanted to, to mention that because uh, that is a series that managed to survive on things that other series is, uh, found that they, you know, Metal Gear Solid 2 was bogged down by that kind of extra mythologizing yes. and introducing other characters, whereas Legacy of Kane seemed to get along on that stuff. It surprises me to learn that Grand Theft Auto Vice City came out in this year uh, because it, it doesn't seem that long between Grand Theft Auto 3 and Grand Theft Auto Vice City. But apparently that's what it is, one a year. People complain about one entry in a in a series a year now. But back then you went from Liberty City to Vice City and, and everybody lapped it up. I think the, Vice City is definitely the high watermark of the Grand Theft Auto yeah, it's, it's, it's a it's a kind of a brilliant expansion pack to the first game in a way, and the the, the 80s setting and the 80s music, and yeah, uh, just just kind of a completely different locale from being in a kind of quasi New York where you were before. I think it was, and also the fact you could you, there was a storyline there was much better before you were kind of a, a a dude who just moved around from one gang to another until you eventually killed off the leader of the of the big gang at the end. Uh, but in this one, there's kind of a development to it because you kind of, you take over the town, literally. You, you get yourself a big mansion. You get yourself dudes that do work for you as well. You have allies. You have betrayals. You have ongoing storyline. You also have uh, your own boss who eventually you have to sh- have a showdown with at the end in your, in your mansion. So, you know, uh, also helicopters. Yeah, I mean, it occurs to me, now that I come to think back on it, that that is the, oh, oh. Yeah, that's the only Grand Theft Auto game that I have actually bothered to finish. Really? Yeah, the first one, I just got bored and I'd opened up the last area. So one of the missions was annoying me and I couldn't be bothered. The third one, I got very close to the end, but I have to say it was in two shifts. I played it for a while, got to the jetpack, got bored, stopped playing, and then came back later and started working through the last missions to get to the end and then i just stopped planning because i was like why am i doing this i don't care whereas grand theft auto vice city was the only one where i was like that invested in what was going on so yes well that, i think also the, uh, the main storyline can wrap up whilst you still have other things left to do i think that's another thing about it as well yeah, Vice City is definitely a, a, a high point, and from here on, as we sort to see, it kind of declines from there. Uh, the other thing that I want to mention this year, uh, maybe much to my shame, uh, I don't know, uh, and, and indeed yours, Ian, is that uh, Fatal Frame was brought out this year, a game which I have only ever played the demo, and Ian, I don't think you've even played that. Do you remember this incident? No, please do tell. I, it's, it's, I, why, you remember every time you know, put a movie on for you or put a video game on, except this one. You came up for the weekend and I had a, a, you know, it was the days when they still put demo discs on the front of magazines. So I got the demo disc. I said, oh, they've got this new survival horror after we'd enjoyed Silent Hill 2 coming out. 
of um, you know this game Fatal Frame where you use a camera to capture. Oh yes, yeah. And we put it on, and the demo scared us so much that we were like, "I'm not playing that game. (laughs) Why would you put do that to yourself?" So I've never played an actual. It's called Project Zero in Japan, yes. and possibly in America. You, you play a, you play a, I play a schoolgirl, and you kind of in a haunted house, and you you sort of defeat the ghosts by taking photographs of them as they come swooping towards you. The rest of the time, they're almost invisible, and of course, if they touch you right. too many times, uh, scared to death. One one assumes uh, it is dark, creepy, claustrophobic, and my goodness, why would you go in there? Leave the ghosts alone. <laughs> Uh, but you seem to have skipped over a memory of shadows because this must have come out by now. And this, this had a wonderful labyrinthine plotline. It was, it was a, a marvel to watch its multiple endings unveil itself as you go time traveling yeah, around the same little town. You are quite correct. I'm not sure whether they're, I mean, remember this is Wikipedia, which is, you know, the arbiter of all that uh, is, maybe it just didn't exist. Maybe we just dreamt it because if Wikipedia didn't say it, then it can't be true. Is it? Eh? It's it, it definitely come up by now because I saw you playing this and I was like, I've got to get a PS2. Well, all they've got is Shadow Man Second Coming. That's the only SH they've got in 2002. Let us search this out. Shadow of Memories. Memories, uh, Wikipedia. Uh, also known as Shadow of Destiny in the USA. Uh, 2001 apparently. Okay, we completely missed it. Yes, I remember this. Yes, this was. Well, it was basically a point and click adventure, wasn't it? Really? Yeah, but it was move, move, you move your character around. Essentially, yes. uh, someone is trying to murder you and you have an appointed hour of death and you have to try and time travel around back and forth through history trying to unveil the mystery of who it is who's trying to kill you. And you keep... And why? And why? And the thing is, you can avert your death, but then the, the killer will just try again because you still haven't amassed who it is yet who's trying to kill you. And you're being aided in this time-traveling quest by a homunculus. And yeah, as the story unveils, because you meet an, meet an alchemist in like the far distant past, you realize the, the homunculus isn't, is, isn't completely morally neutral character. All he's doing is trying to assist his own creation in a way by safeguarding you. Uh, and, uh, of course, as you're time traveling back in time, you can change things, you can, you can save people who originally died and things like that. So, the, when you return to the future, it could be, be completely different. You can even see yourself in alternate timelines you didn't take because it's a multiverse. It's mind blowing, um, the plot line of this game. Uh, and there's five different endings and two hidden endings, and you can even replay the game again and go completely meta, because you know how things are going to end now, and so you can preempt the entire game, I think, by killing the homunculus at the start. <laughs> so, indeed, yes. It, it, it was a, a definitely... It was, I think it was more of an... Uh, well, how can I put it? An experience yes. than a, an actual game. Uh, because it was all about walking around, clicking on things. But then, so were point-and-click adventures. But people have often said that they're not really games either. So, uh, who knows what the uh, thing is. If there's a chance uh, of so, failure, then it's a game. <laughs> yes, that's that's a way to look at things. Right, yes, we cannot possibly leave 2002 without discussing, even though it's not on the stupid list. Eternal Darkness, Sanity's Requiem. Oh, the the one game that the GameCube is properly remembered for, and famous not having a sequel. 
Silicon Knights, same people that invented Legacy of Kane, so of course it was going to be a rippingly good storyline. Um, uh, awesome game. Uh, you've, have you played this, Justin? Any experiences with it at all? Uh, yes, yes. I did have a huge amount of games on my GameCube, but this is one of the cherished ones, though. So. Oh, please, please, uh, um, expand. So, it, well, put it this way, it's, it's about as Cthulhu as you can get without, you know, without actually being the Cthulhu mythos. So the game create, has created its own eldritch horror mythos. Um, and you, you play various incarnations through history of characters. And so it starts kind of in the Roman times. Um, and it makes its way through. And as the story builds, you find out more of what's going on. Your, your actual character is a contemporary character looking back at these kind of historical documents and, and then kind of, you know, living that experience in the game. As you go through, the story gets darker and darker and bigger and bigger until it's an enormous, the, by the end, it's this huge titanic, you know, eldritch gods, and you're, you are this small pawn trying to do something, prevent these kind of things from happening. Um, it is just t- totally absorbing because you just, well, the fact that it keeps changing times is just interesting anyway. So you're different characters, you can do different stuff. Um, you're exploring, you're discovering weird kind of things, but it is unbel- it's kind of dripping with atmosphere. I mean, it's so kind of dark. Also, there's a certain amount of replayability. I've only played through the game once, but you can play it several times because it all depends what, what kind of elder gods you kind yes. of choose early on that gives you the, the kind of flavour of the game, and there are different things that are influenced by that. The game kind of combines, it's kind of puzzles... Uh, there is some kind of fighting and, you know, running away from, from things, exploring, dungeon delving. Um, I think it's just, I just astounding. It, I say it's just the atmosphere is incredible. And you, there's, there's great sequences where there's kind of madness takes over and you're, you know, the, the whole of the, um, uh, the console reacts as if, as if you, you might be going mad yourself. Um, lovely touches like that. Um, yeah, I just think it's a very solid, it's a brilliant game, very, very memorable, you know, just, I say, oozing with kind of, kind of beautiful eldritch horror. And, uh, yes, it, it, the, the conceit of, uh, your first character is, is actually the main, main antagonist of the game, and which elder god he chooses in that first scenario determines the principal god you have to fight throughout the game. It, it's very clever. And, it's also famous for the many character deaths you, the player, have to go through. Normally, your characters will meet a very grisly end, and you, <clears throat> at the time, you may be wondering, what was the point of that little incident then? I just sort of wandered around, had a horrible time, then was stomped on by a giant crab. Uh, and, of course, it's at the end when you realise that you've been subtly manoeuvring objects around for other characters to pick up later and then die, dropping them somewhere else important. So they can yeah. all be gathered together at the end for a counter-summoning you know, antagonist god that's been summoned in. And if you play it through all three times and defeated all three gods, you realise the real enemy of the game was uh, a completely different god who you thought was bound and weak, but he was manipulating things to wipe out all his adversaries. Mind-blowing! Wow. Yeah, so uh, that's definitely uh, it's a, a high point in uh, video game history. The thing about it is that many high points in video game history, there's like two types. There's Grand Theft Auto 3, Metal Gear Solid, and Silent Hill 2, which everybody knows about. 
And then there's this secret history of video games where there's games like, uh, uh, and I can't talk to this, but everybody raves about it. There's a game called Anachronox, which uh, is meant to be amazing, uh, but it's one of those that I personally haven't played. And then you've got Eternal Darkness. And in 2003, you had Beyond Good and Evil. And these are the games that people didn't play or respond to that nevertheless inspired great love from those that did play it. But anyway, we're, we're, we're moving on uh, to 2003. Now, 2003 is what I would call a comfortable year. There's a lot of stuff going on and you can have a good time with a video game console. But what is really standing out in 2003? Uh, not much. You know, you get Silent Hill 3, which is kind of like Silent Hill 2, but less good. The Simpsons hit and run, which transposed Grand Theft Auto into Springfield uh, with variable results. It was a bit sort of cutesy, really. Prince of Persia, The Sands of Time, is worth mentioning, I suppose, as a sort of... I mean, this is a high watermark in the Prince of Persia uh, series for a lot of people with its uh, time-rewindy magic gimmick. People played that, apart from me? Nope. No. Weird. That's like one of those games that everybody has played, except for two people here. Uh, it was fine. Of course, uh, if we're talking about the sort of genre, uh, genre of video game entertainment kind of mashup, Enter the Matrix was out in the May of 2000. This is, this is in one hand a very awesome game, uh, before, for its simple interlacing of cutscenes that connect seamlessly with the uh, Matrix uh, Reloaded. Uh, at the same time, it's a shockingly bad game. That's quite dull and empty. I mean, you think if any film would lend itself well to becoming a video game, it would be The Matrix. Surprisingly, I, I don't know what the path of Neo is like, but my experience of Matrix games is they're pretty awful. I quite liked Enter the Matrix, but only on the GameCube. Couldn't stand it on the PS2. When it was, The thing about the GameCube is it had a great controller, and if you played this game with a great controller, it moved so fast that you just like romped around doing cool stuff for a couple of hours and it was cool. And then you got, you know, cutscenes of Matrix material. Yeah, on other platforms, it was a bit lumpen. I did try and play The Path of Neo because apparently it's got loads of stuff in it that's uh, pretty cool. Well, uh, uh, I never got that far because it was boring. The Path of Neo was a course correction because one of the major complaints about Into the Matrix when it came out was we don't get to play Trinity or Neo or Morpheus. We play two other characters. One of them's Ghost and one of them's what was what was Morpheus's old squeeze? No, no, Morpheus, Morpheus's no. girlfriend. Ghost and Niobe. Niobe. And so we're playing these characters like, well, we're just playing Matrix dudes. We're not playing da-da-da-da. Uh, but it, it's very clever. I mean, you, you play this game and you just see how it all ties into the background of things that were going on. I mean, this tied in with um, the Animatrix, which uh, we're, uh, it, it just sort of, the, the whole build-up towards the second film, there was lots of like, because there's a prequel mini-film uh, in the Animatrix. And this serves as kind of a prequel and, and a background you know, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern-esque adventure through um, a Matrix Reloaded as well. That was all very clever, and it probably expanded the universe and gave you clues you wouldn't get until you saw the third film as well. So it, it was very clever, just unfortunately the game wasn't very good. And please, let us not speak about Matrix Online, which is just such a sad story. Uh, well, it's, 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 it's not worth talking about, and that's what makes it a sad story. There's a debate, I find it highly suspicious to have any... Uh, big media, e.g. mass media film product, that has tie-ins that are not in the same 
medium. The Animatrix kind of got away with it because it was like an animated DVD, so people could watch it uh, before watching the next movie. Video game times, I think, you know, you're, not, you're asking people, if they're not video gamers, you're asking a lot of them to go and buy a console to play part of the story. In Enter the Matrix, it was very sidelined, but uh, they did eventually end up putting all the cinematic cutscenes onto the, into the big Matrix box set. So that shows you that, you know, there was stuff. They, I mean, they actually filmed while they were filming The Matrix Reloaded and Revolutions, these cutscenes. So yeah, you, I mean, you know, that was I mean, something different. It's good that the Wiskalskis, when I said, yes, let's do a Matrix game, and actually sat down and worked out a whole plot that was, you know, canon and weaved into the contemporary storyline that was going on at the time. That's all quite cool. It's a very cool, clever thing. It just didn't quite come off. Um, but then, of course, uh, yeah, that as yes, it didn't work. Unlike uh, a game that nobody played, probably you didn't play either. Beyond Good and Evil, I saw uh, you play it. You saw me play it. Yes, to the bitter end. To the bit. Oh, did you see the bit? Me play the bit where the first time when I got to the end was yep. like, mm, forget this. Uh, and then later on, bought it for the GameCube, where I figure the controller will help me. But I haven't got to the end again yet. I thought we finished it, didn't we? Because we got to the final boss. No, we didn't. We didn't. We couldn't get that oh, last we couldn't, Oh, yeah, because it was flipping the controls upside down and things like that, wasn't it? it was yeah. Lots of like, this is a game. This is a bit late in the game to introduce this mechanic, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. It was just, so we never actually saw the end, uh, because the PlayStation 2 controller is not the kindest when people start flipping around the way the controller's working. Uh, which is why I figured if I play it on the GameCube, maybe that, that It'll be more forgiving. But yeah, beautiful open world. Weird. It's kind of like, it, it's a game that has, I think, the same atmosphere as The Fifth Element. Yes. Okay. And it, it, it's got the same kind of soundtrack as The Fifth Element. It's got the same, it, it's not quite as bright, but it has like hippos, uh, anthropomorphic hippos that listen to reggae, nice. an anthropomorphic pig that's a redneck. It's got all these crazy, funny things. A, a Zen walrus who runs a gift shop. Uh, you know, it's, it's just got all these crazy, funny bits in it. I just played this. That sounds like my streets. <laughs> it's a platform, uh, open world stealth game in which you play a photographer called Jade. And she uh, is... All her missions are to photograph certain things to get the truth out about some shady things that are happening on her little sort of Endor with Oceans world, which is called Illis. It's basically like a nice green little world with big oceans. You get like a hovercraft to go in and stuff. The very first mission in the game is to go and fetch money to pay the electricity bill. Right. That is the that is the first mission in the game. She's not really very good at fighting. She can fight the nasties because the nasties are big insects that are not actually that difficult to to dispatch with a. She's got a bow staff. But then there are these people called Alpha Squadron or something, and they've got suits of armor, and you cut. She can't fight them. They would just mush her. So you have to sneak through installations filled well, she get with these. Alpha- she gets buddies to help her, doesn't she? She gets like uh, big tough guys that can help you out in fights. Yes, there are people who can help out in a fight. And there is also a thing where if you do manage to sneak up behind a guard, you can undo a spigot, which sends them flying off into the air, like a balloon with the air coming out of it, which uh-huh. is quite hilarious. But uh, yeah, people retrospectively love this game, but nobody bought it. <laughs> 
well, at the time. Again, it has the Shenmue factor. This was set up to be like the first in a series. So we're just on one world and then we take off at the end to go explore the galaxy and there's no more games. Often, yeah, you, often rumoured to be in development but never materialises. Well, the, the problem is that they went, they were going to develop the next one and they suddenly went, oh, we've suddenly had the scales have fallen from our eyes. We need the PlayStation 3 or Xbox to, uh, 360 to do this. And then now their story is, actually, it's that technically complicated. We need this generation. So, yeah, it's becoming a bit of a... Bit of a uh, yeah, ever so they, often they, ever uh, often they toss uh, out a new uh, rendered cutscene uh, just to fill the gap every so often. So, yeah, um, 2003, 2004, it, it pretty much business as usual again. Uh, but I will mention this year was the year of the uh, other notable movie universe game uh, video game crossover uh, Chronicles of Re- Escape from Butcher Bay not a rubbish game in fact notably a really good game well the the big joke was it was a it was better than the film that came out at the same time Riddick, which i think is uh, unfair but yes carry on well we might say it's unfair but it was it was it was popular opinion you can't argue with what they say um, but it was it was the way Riddick because he only had one film which was pitch black and now all of a sudden we need to have the Riddick universe and it was a very clever way they kind of did that because it had this obviously big sequel coming out Chronicles of Riddick but then they also had like was it like a 30 minute anime feature as well that linked the two films together and there was this video game which is a prequel to how Riddick became Riddick in the first place with his seeing with his seeing the dark eyes and everything uh, and so it's a very clever way of like spontaneously generating a uh, expanded universe like even though it was a second film it felt like this was almost like you know the trilogy had already come and gone in a funny sort of way uh, yeah, it had some crazy stuff in there. First of all, I'm not much one, don't really have time for first person games, uh, but this one I didn't mind. It also had a thing which is not noted for being good, which is good hand to hand combat in a first person game, which uh, is quite amazing. It had obviously, uh, Vin Diesel did the voice of Riddick, which helps enormously, and you also had uh, people like Ron Perlman doing voices of other characters. It was like another Riddick movie. And uh, again, although that's a strength, it's also a weakness because I would say that you can't require people to a certain extent to do that. So there are those who will do it, you know, play a video game as part of the, the movie universe. But... Uh, I don't know. It just it's it's not going to reach enough people. I don't think for it to be a worthwhile thing. Um, and I mean, you know, although everybody said that Chronicles of Riddick wasn't a good movie at the time, by the time Riddick came out, well, everybody decided it was brilliant. <laughs> That's just comparatively because Riddick is so. No, well. no, no, no. Before it came out, people were pumped. The reason Riddick got enough money that I believe they are even going to make another sequel mm. is because people were looking back and going, I wish I'd given that film more of a chance when it came out the first time. And then they went and saw Riddick and went, oh, that was a bit... Was a misogynist. <laughs> yes, what's with all the misogyny dudes? Um, so, yeah. Uh, and apart from this, I mean, that's notable as being a sort of moment in that crossover. I mean, to be honest, they don't really do that anymore get involved in these big event video games. And I think it is precisely because they realise that you can't possibly hit as many people up for a video game. Video games make more money because they're more expensive per unit than cinema tickets. But 
Yeah, you, you're not. You can't put. Video games, video games are more popular and the most popular kind of uh, thing that you want to get into more than film now. So, what's the point of? You might as well just make good film, good video games. Well, there is that because the other thing is that movie studios uh, want to make money off the licensing to a video game. And therefore, they jack up the price. They don't have the proper development time. You know, like this Assassin's Creed Unity that's coming out in a couple of months. They've yeah. been working on that for four years at this stage. Yeah. You know, Assassin's Creed Unity was about as a concept in 2010. And they can't do that with films. Or they don't do that with films. Or it's all different business models. So, yeah, they, they have to stay uh, separate. So, yeah, I mean, this... 2004 here is a year of, I think this is the point where the relationship is getting a little bit too comfortable. We have, you know, Halo 2, you have uh, GTA San Andreas, uh, Metal Gear Solid 3. I mean, they're, they're Prince of Persia well, Warrior within. I'll just briefly say this because the counterpoint you're kind of, because I have to say that actually my relationship with GTA is it kind of, I prefer them as they, as they get, as the newer ones come out. Um, but GTA, San Andreas was the one that opened my eyes. That was just the scope you could do. The size of that game was enormous. Yes, it is. It is a huge game. I loved that freedom. You could just go. It the world seemed like it was never ending. You know, obviously it was going to get bigger and bigger, and there's games bigger now. But at that time, it was like you just get out of a city, and then you've got like three other cities or whatever. You know, you just keep going. There's there's, there's countryside. There's. It's just... I think there's definitely yes. The the, the scale of uh, Vice City, uh, not Vice City. Sorry, San Andreas is is enormous. I think the big problem with engagement is that, and people have noted this, is that when you played Tommy Vasetti in Vice City, it all made sense because Tommy Vasetti was a lunatic, and you were playing a guy who was a lunatic. You know, his whole plot arc is somebody stole a bunch of mo drug money off me. I'm going to kill everyone to get it back. Right. And therefore, when you ran around with a chainsaw and did all this stuff, it was completely in keeping with the character. All the crazy stuff that happened was completely in character. So the story is coherent. And the way they dealt with that in GTA 3 is that the guy doesn't say anything. So you don't know what he's thinking. So he's just a cipher. But this guy, uh, uh, I can't even remember, CJ in San Andreas, they tried to be a bit too worthy. There's also a big disappointment in that you can buy all these houses, and I bought every house, and I, you know, this is how silly it was. There was a farm, and it was quite expensive. So I went around doing stuff to earn money to buy this farm, and I, haha, bought the farm. And uh, you went inside the farm, and it was exactly the same as several of the others. And you're like, oh, okay. I mean, I know they had a limited amount of space. Once but... I worked out that you could go to the casino and quite easily fiddle the system by by careful use of saving points. Yes. Then really, you could just buy whatever you want. There wasn't any, any that aspect to it. There wasn't any real challenge. Yeah. All the houses. Uh, that's not really why I liked it though. I, I, for me, it was. A, I like the missions, but it was. It was all about the the, the, uh, the sandbox nature of it. If if I may take us on a bit of a diversion here, I'm afraid, and, and move away. You, from... you certainly may. Please do. For me, this is kind of where we part ways because I didn't. I didn't take into the PlayStation Three generation at all, or any console for that matter, because I was trapped on a different planet, and in many ways, I still am, because this was the year World of Warcraft came out. 
And uh, to give a quick essay on uh, what MMOs were like up until this point is that there was generally speaking a sandbox approach to them where you dump you down and you're a dude and off you go. And yes, there was a lot of fantasy games out at the time. And uh, the death penalty for these games could be quite harsh. It was definitely from the D&D roots. I mean, the, you could die and you would lose everything, have to start over again. There were some games where you die and lose gold or lose experience or we have to go where to where your body was and get back the items that were left on there. In the meantime, someone else could come along and rob all your stuff. Uh, so then World of Warcraft came along, and you not even Blizzard were expecting it to be as big as it was. And I'll say this for Blizzard, and I've given them a lot of money over the years. Blizzard don't have an original idea in any of their games. What they do is they see what everyone else has done, and they, then they put it together and they give it a really, really nice polish and then continue to polish it even after it's come out. Uh, there's a reason that they had the gold standard for balanced, uh, you know, RTS competitive gameplay in Korea for like 10 years. Um, World of Warcraft kind of blew my mind the first time I logged in. It is such a user-friendly game. When you die in World of Warcraft, basically you have to go recover your body and you carry on with your game. There's no real harsh penalty. It was because it's a kiddies game by the industry at the time. For that reason, it's like, oh, this is for the kids to play. And then it just took over the world. And in a very short space of time, it had millions of players. At its peak in 2008, it had like 12 million players worldwide. It's down to like 7 million now. But 7 million players are going to continue, who will pony up money. Every yeah. month to play is still incredible. It's still the biggest MMO in the world, even though it's lost nearly half its, well, it's, it's had more, lost more, well, half its players, its player turnover. But it's still going now. And I've, I've tried jumping ship once because they had a few, they had a few, they had a bit of a wobble period in quality, shall we say. So I jumped ships to another MMO, Star Wars, The Old Republic. And it had all the facets that WoW had. But for some reason, players just didn't want to stick to it. They said, it's just like, wow, we hate it. And then they went back to wow, which is a really strange thing to do. By and large, it has, it has in many ways saved me a lot of money because I haven't had to buy consoles every four years. I haven't had to go out and buy video games for 60 bucks a time. I haven't had to deal with all this downloadable content nonsense that uh, happens. And I've just kind of spent most time uh, being pretty much the same paladin, working my way through expansion after expansion, defeating ever-increasing... You know, MMOs are dumb. It's about accruing numbers and getting more armor to get bigger numbers, to go fight bigger monsters with your bigger numbers. That mechanic hasn't changed. In many ways, it's it's the most prosaic form of gameplay you can think about. But the world is just so wonderfully detailed with its, with its storyline and characters. And these days, you know, I, I own a small farm, you know, it's in the world of Warcraft, which I can actually plant things down which are useful to me. You get very attached to your character, very emotionally attached to your character. I have, there's a special 3D printing company that will 3D print your character for you. I'm like, if I, ever, if, I ever, if I ever quit this game, I've got to get a 3D print of my paladin just for prosperity. The, the thought that one day Blizzard might turn off the servers and that's your lot, matey Jim, like most MMOs do eventually, is horrifying to me. I, mean, I can't come back and revisit this in 20 years like I can with Legacy Kane. Oh my god! But yes, that's my extended World of Warcraft. What do you guys think about World of Warcraft, having never played it? <laughs> I, it's not for me, I must admit. I don't like ongoing gaming anyway because my experience of it is that the world is full of uh, twats and idiots. <laughs> And I don't want to have discussions with them because and it's an anonymous format. And every experience I've ever done with uh, various incarnations of games, 
I have just been surrounded by idiots who scream sentences at me. So I don't actually like the idea of gaming with regular people. I have bad experiences of it. But also, it's just too much. I can't devote that kind of time to something. I've got so too much going on. I like games. Or rather, I would be too addicted to it if I really got into it, if I'm honest. Yeah. I like games. I get really into the games, and then I go and I blitz it, and then um, it's done. And, that, and that's it. That experience is gone, and then I will then wait a while before I'll get excited with something else. If I've got something ongoing that at any point I could dip into, that that would that that is dangerous for me, for my type of personality. I could just lose all my free time completely. So I think it's wise that I don't. So those two combinations really have just means that it's just not something I did. I did actually uh, have a little play around with with it, and it seemed absolutely fine. You know, um, it, it was fun. It looked, looked fun as you were going around this expansive world. Uh, but yeah, I, I got out before I realised I might got infected by the bug. So I've got a real big problem with MMOs, which is that I really can't see the point. Uh, well, that's the point of any game, I suppose. Well, I guess, but the thing about it is, you know, I'm a massive. Um... <coughs> he says that after he built a load of worlds in that <coughs> one of his down there. <coughs> Do you want me to point to them then? <laughs> yeah, all right. Um, but yeah, so uh, the th- yeah, the thing about it is. The games that grabbed me are things like Silent Hill 2, Eternal Darkness, um, and of course Assassin's Creed, which hasn't happened yet, but it's going to shortly. And in that, there is a rich narrative experience which fascinates. And I never get that out of uh, I have never got a, an actual story. The closest I've ever come is that, like, understanding some of the shenanigans that go on in EVE Online. But the problem is that those are stories that play out over years of of grind, and it, it's it's sort of meta to the actual mechanics of the actual game. Interestingly, there's a game that's just come out called Shadow of Mordor, uh, Lord of the Rings game, which you uh, go around uh, hunting orcs. And uh, one of the things that it's done is they've developed this thing called the Nemesis system, where the orcs in the game are actual characters. And when you win a fight against an orc or lose a fight against an orc or some interaction happens between you and one of the main orcs, it's got this view that shows you the power structure of all the orcish leaders and shows you know so if you lose a fight against an orc it takes you to that view and shows you this orc has now powered up and will be more difficult to defeat in future because now he has more orcish respect for having kicked your butt and if they fail to kill you when they attack you or something then the reverse happens and i always thought that that would be a great thing to have in an mmo is to have an element where there was some kind of um political thing going on but it isn't it's all just grinding it's all just do yeah. this a billion times and you'll get another number to me it, and it seems gets like just bad kind of you know it reminds me of my D experiences where it's just this kind of well that i haven't i haven't played it so it's not fair but they, i think i was put off by someone in a comic shop always come into um uh this comic shop where i happen to be a role-playing shop 
and they would just say, like, they'd just spend all day talking about what their character had done. And it was like, it's, I went down to this dungeon, and I killed this, and I got this, and I did that. And it just sounded like the most boring experience that you'd ever imagine. You know, it's like the, it's like role playing without without the role with the role playing taken out. But it's just that, like you say, the grind of going down, fighting the creature, and earning an experience. And and I don't derive a lot of pleasure from that. I do like interaction, and I don't know what and and I don't know how that would work in a in that in that format. So it's one one of the factors that put me off it. Just just to kind of uh, round things off. The permanency of the world, because World of Warcraft is like, it basically gets a fantasy theme park where you, you, you go in and you do fantasy theme park adventure. There's various levels of play, and, you know, back in the day, I was in, in a guild that did raiding. It wasn't a big guild, it was a casual raiding, but there's always eventually, you know, as any group of people come together to do something, there's always eventually drama, and people leaving and quitting, and guild disbanding, and then you try and run the guild yourself, and then people within working against you. And I got so burnt out that these days, the main reason I keep playing is that my stepbrother still plays. And we can just log on for like uh, two hours or so every so often, have a bit of a bish-bosh-bosh against things and work towards objectives at our own pace. Because it is so casual-friendly, World of Warcraft. It's ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, you can go full hardcore if you want to. But the permanency of the world is a big problem. They try to fix this by having phasing. So if you completed vital missions, the world would change. But this meant that some people were in one phase and some people were another. And so it was difficult yeah. for friends to play together. So they've more or less abandoned that idea now. But in the next expansion, I get to run and maintain a whole town. So I'm looking forward yeah. to doing that. Uh, I- anyway... This is where I am, guys. You guys have fun on your console. I'm off to go kill the war, well, the it's war funny, chief. It's funny you should say that because, in fact, there was a whole other year of before the PlayStation 3 came out. And I think that kind of reflects where the PlayStation 2 was at, that you don't even realise the PlayStation 3 wouldn't be around for another 18 months. I mean, I suppose, I mean, it's, it's curious that World of Warcraft cannot be repeated. It's the only one. People have tried. Everyone has failed. You cannot do an MMO for money these days. That's well, I I just think that the, the, the nobody's ever innovated in the the gameplay. But let's move on. Yeah. I mean, yeah. For 2005 on consoles, you had things like Mercenaries, which took GTA to its logical extreme and then showed you why it was silly. Because in that, you just blew stuff up. You could get laser guided missile strikes and all sorts of stuff. It was dull as dishwater. It was so boring. Um, and you suddenly realised that that wasn't what was attracting people to open world. I mean, I tried to play it and I just found it. I just thought, why am I doing this? I don't care. There's Resident Evil 4 was a high point, I suppose. They had quite a nice open world version of uh, The Warriors came out for the PS2. That was okay. But it was very much like, yeah, you know, this, we've, everybody's just, just pushing stuff out at this stage. Call of Cthulhu, Dark Corners of the Earth came out for the Xbox in 2005. That was um, an experience. Yep. Anyone play that? No. You didn't play it. It's basically the shadow over Innsmouth. And people who know H.P. Lovecraft, I haven't, I've spoiled it for you. People who don't, you can still play it. You won't know what the hell I'm talking about. But right. yes, yeah, that's a crazy, scary, crazy game. It's just nuts. Yeah. And then, yeah, and then in 2006, uh, we had the, um, the advent of the PlayStation 3. You know, PS3 had what, PS3 and PS4 have both had what you might be generous and describe as a, a soft launch. Uh, yeah. now I'm catching up, uh, we, we, by which I mean, 
they didn't really have a lot of software when they started out. So 2006 was still a PlayStation 2 year. I'm just looking to see. I mean, even I, this is the point at which I was like, yeah, I've, I've had it. I'm not Well, is it, is it worth commenting on that the, the PlayStation 3? I mean, I was, I was a Sony fanboy. I was Sony all the way and Microsoft's Xbox was kind of some sort of antichrist. But even I had a sit of marvel about just how badly bungled the PlayStation 3 launch seemed to be and how the console seemed to be so ill-fitting. There was a massive thing at the time. Well, the heads of Sony got very involved in the PS3 development and launch and kept saying stupid things like we could put out a piece of plywood with a speak and spell nailed to it and everybody lap it up because it's got PlayStation on it. The PS3 launch was this hallmark of arrogance on the part of Sony that they believed they'd just walk away with the crown because, you know, who were the, they didn't have any competition. But they were wrong. You know, Xbox 360 pretty much won the last Oh, round. no, 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 no. They didn't. The Wii Did won. The Wii won. Yeah, well, we kind of sat in between all of it, didn't we? Yeah, yeah okay. but it, it the is the with... most popular bought console of that generation. Yeah, but it's also the most popular. Subsequently, people look at it and go, what the fuck did I buy that for? And then they take it to the shop and get rid of it console. That That is the... Yeah, that is the... Well, that... Because it is, you know, it, it's appealing to traditionally non-gamers. And, of course, there's more non-gamers than there are gamers. So lots of people would have bought it for family for Christmas and play it once and stick it in the cupboard. If you were going to do a poll of actual proper serious gamers, they wouldn't be choosing Wii because of just the limitations of the system. Yeah, it was a very weird generation, the last generation of consoles, because uh, Xbox 360 came out of the gate battling, whereas PS3 swaggered in as if it was going to win and then nobody really... They, they were, people were like, it's too expensive, it's too bulky... It doesn't have a lot of software at launch. A lot of stuff is cross-platform anyway, so why would we buy it? And, and you, people just, you know, didn't like the PS3 at, at first. Um, and PS, the PlayStation eventually recovered uh, because Xbox stuck to this idea that you have to pay to play online, which, if you didn't play online, wasn't a big problem. But if you did, then it was a huge problem because PS3 gave you that free. Second of all, PSN started doing the giveaway games. That while you had a PlayStation Plus account, you got to have games on your system which ran with the account. And it made it a no-brainer because they gave away really serious, real, proper games. So, you know, and you might not have bought them otherwise, and you just, they just went, oh yeah, here's 50 games that you could just download and play. And people were like, what? And, and some games became classics, and they in fact got sequels and all sorts of stuff, merely because they were given away on this games for free idea. But you're not, you're subscribing, and you only get to keep the game while you've got a subscription. But people actually didn't have a problem with that because the subscription wasn't that expensive. Whereas Xbox's uh, comparable subscription in price uh, allowed you to use Netflix or, and stuff like that, stuff you could do on the PS3 for free. So essentially PlayStation Plus was all about, here, have 50 games which you don't now have to pay full price for and you could just play them or not. I don't care. And occasionally it gave away one that would stay even if your subscription expired and so playstation plus became like a must-have for those people who played a lot of games whereas 
Xbox was uh, Xbox Gold was a must-have because otherwise your bloody console wouldn't work properly, and that just generated bad feeling. So you know, th- they, there was a little bit of to and fro in there. And yes, the Wii was very popular for a bit until people stopped playing Wii Sports and went, "Hey, what else can I get for this dang console?" Well, I, went, I think, well, I think there's a bit really. of gaming snobbery going on here. Those weren't real games. Those aren't no, real, not that gamers. They real games. You're recycling Mario again. No. Nintendo made a bucket load of money. The GameCube had a similar vibe, you know, in that they they designed it so that it was, you know, user friendly and it was kind of a cute little thing. It's why I got it. I just I preferred the look of it. Well, everyone, um, everyone uh, the games on it were the games were multi platform. You could get you you could get your Eternal Darkness. You could, I mean, they were they were all audiences. You could yeah. get. All, you, you, I didn't feel with the GameCube that I'd made the wrong choice because I can't play this X, Y, yeah. and Z games. Whereas yeah. when I was making decisions what console I bought and end up getting an Xbox 360, I looked at Wii and went. But what else is there? And I, yeah. I'm a later doctor, so this was after a, a couple of years or 18 months after it had been released. And I'm like, but they're all the same type of games. And even though they're fun for parties, I don't want to play all those games. I want to play something else. So that's where it failed on me. And so if you were into that kind of party casual game, sure, the Wii will provide everything, but it does not give well, you anything else. I think, no, I think that everybody's uh, missing my original point there, which was, I'm not saying they're not proper games. In fact, most people say, Wii Sports is a proper game and it's a good game. They're not. It's not about casual snobbery. It's about the fact that they said, the big mistake Nintendo made with the Wii was that they gave you Wii Sports with the Wii. Hmm. And then they didn't have a follow-up. And yet, there were a lot of things that you could play on other consoles that got ported into the Wii, but the difference was that the Wii had those stupid controllers that didn't really work with quote-unquote proper games. And so, it didn't have the... Co- yeah, it just simply didn't have the content. It's not about snobbery, it's well, about the fact that there, there it didn't have the content. I mean, I, I would never have bought a Wii myself. I think it's a, it's a silly gimmick that comes with the console anyway. It's not It's not an innovation at all. Um, but there is an element of snobbery about it. My sister plays, like, Facebook games all the time. She plays Bejeweled, does things on the farm, all these other sorts of castle games that you do on Facebook, and she will play it every night for a few hours, but somehow is not considered a gamer because of the platform she does yeah, it on. Yeah, that's fine. Well, that's, uh, but that's, that's apples and oranges. But to make smart business sense, you have to design a game console that is able to play more for one audience. Yeah, I mean, you could get, you could, you know, there's no reason why the Wii couldn't have had, you know, very dark games that use that engine. But they made the design choice. They were going to take that market that was there, but they were going to go, no, this, we are going to dedicate to that. You know, that, that's where we feel. And that's fine, but that's going to put off a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, you could get Assassin's Creed for the, the Wii. In fact, I mean, I might have, they might have skipped that one and gone straight to two, but you could get some of the Assassin's Creed games for the, the, the Wii. But the problem was, it was like, well, why would the hell would you do that? One, the, the hardware is actually slightly behind the other two consoles in this generation. Two, the other two have a, con- a controller that is suited to playing that game. So why would you? Plus, the developers found it a pain to develop for the Wii. So many didn't. And even if they did, some of the stuff was missing in the Wii ports of those games. So at the end of the day, the Wii failed because it just didn't have 
a follow up to its great epic opening. Um, not and, and nobody's denying that the opening was great and epic, and everybody loves Wii Sports. Everybody, everybody, everybody. Problem is they gave it away with the console. So you know, there we go. The other formats were wise to it because Xbox produces it. It comes out with its own gimmick <coughs> of Connect. The PlayStation Three has the kind of ball thing move. So they they move. Exactly. They, go, they, they said, like, well, we can do a gimmick as well. But the difference between us is, yeah, so we can do those games. So you can play the equivalent of that that you would play on the Wii, but then we'll do everything else. And that's the that's where we fail that. I will so, just, yeah. I'll just, I'll just finish off, and this is the end. It's just that I think it attracted a lot of people to playing consoles that didn't traditionally play consoles. And that was kind of the Wii's thing. And it did sell an awful lot of units. Yes. yes. Anyway, uh, the, I, I mean, ironically, I'm thinking of getting one now because uh, to buy something that will upscale a GameCube signal to uh, an HD television, uh, it will cost me uh, 30, 40 quid. To buy a secondhand Wii, which you could just put GameCube games in and plug a controller into the top of it, apparently, will cost me 20 quid. So it's like it's a no-brainer. So uh, they're still selling them consoles, perhaps not for the reasons... They originally thought. Uh, so we can skip straight to the PlayStation 3, which is where the big, the big hitters came in. We're talking, you know, Assassin's Creed, of course. We're talking Bioshock. I mean, you know, this is the current era of, of, of cinematic gaming. Uh, of course, uh, one of your favorites, Justin, is, um, Cowboy Game. Ah, my brain's gone dead. Red, Red Dead Redemption. Well, then, it's no, it's no real surprise that I am going to be, you know, swayed by beautiful games. And this is the format. Where I played games before, this is the format. The moment I got my Xbox, this was the moment when I started playing games that were just beautiful. Red Dead Redemption is stunning. I remember going into the desert and just watching the sunset. I mean, that's, that's how ludicrous pretty it is for no other reason than that. It's just, you know, a bit, yeah, I mean, who doesn't want to play? It's a, it, the animation's beautiful. You really do believe that you're a cowboy in the Wild West. I, the thing I, I'm a big, big fanboy of Rockstar Games. I think they are kind of, well, in my opinion, I put them the equivalent of kind of Pixar with, with, uh, with films. They, they go out of their way to make these enormous games and pushing, pushing the envelope all the time on technology. So I'm just rather come to do it. But anyway, so I'm, so yeah, Red Dead Redemption, um, or, well, LA Noir. I mean, we're going right up to date now, but I mean that the moment I saw all these games, Bioshock, well, that's not to do that, but yeah, I mean, we are in, I'm in a very excited by the current formats. You know, I can play these games that are, um, can be incredibly cinematic are enormous. You know, I mean, they just take as much time as you, as you can throw at them. Um, a pretty and, you know, hopefully decent games with storyline and everything else thrown in as well. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, the, I bought, uh, the, I bought a second hand PlayStation 3 and got to sort of basically pick my way through the, uh, the, the gems and, you know, recommendations really? of an entire generation. And I've got this massive stack of games to play. Yep. Um, and one of the things that uh, everyone knows, uh, who knows me now, is that uh, Assassin's Creed or its various sequels yeah. have never been far from the disc tray oh. of my machine. Now, you um, are responsible for converting me to that as well. The, the difference between Assassin's Creed and Grand Theft Auto 4 shows where Rockstar hadn't gone or bothered to go in the new generation that 
new people come in. Maybe not the first one. The first one's kind of a bit of a tech demo. But one of the things that shocked me when I got the game, I got an Assassin's Creed game first. I was playing it. I was like, oh, this is open world fun, romping around rooftops in the Renaissance. And then I got Grand Theft Auto 4 thought, this is going to be brilliant. I've um, Good old, welcome back, brother, my old friend, Grand Theft Auto 4. And I put Grand Theft Auto 4 in and I suddenly realised that you can't tell. Like in Assassin's Creed, it goes, your next story mission is at that exclamation point there. But here's all the other stuff you can do. And we've given it different icons depending on what kind of mission it is. So you open up your Assassin's Creed world and go, what kind of assassin-y, creedy thing do I want to do today? And you go towards that point on the map and then your activity begins. Marvellous. In Grand Theft Auto, you get a letter, which is a name of a contact. And you have no idea what they're going to tell you to do. And if you want to go into a big building and you do some cover shooting and kill up a bunch of, you know, gangsters and you get there and he goes, drive this car across town with the police chasing you, you got no choice. That's what you're doing because that's what... Uh, I have has to say, I mean, you haven't played Grand Theft Auto 5, have you? No. Um, but they, they're, it's actually, I, I, I played that first and then, and then, and I've currently worked my way through Grand Theft Auto 4, and my god, there are some serious improvements. Um, yeah, they ha- actually have, um, I, I would say maybe not as effective as, as Assassin's Creed. But because there are three characters, they they bring a flavour to it. So one of the characters. Yeah, I mean that that would obviously make a difference. So so because you can jump between characters, you kind of know what you're getting. If you're going into the one of the characters who's a psychopath, you know his missions are are more batshit crazy. Whereas one of the characters is more of a driver, so there'll be more kind of car chases, and other ones more kind of shooty shooty. So there is definitely a better. System now. I actually I love Grand Theft Auto Five. I think it's a beautiful game. Um, but yeah, they they are learning. I think from what else is out there. But of course, but of course, I mean that's the whole point. Uh, I mean to a certain extent, this is the world. You know, there was a series of games on the PlayStation Two which came across the PlayStation Three called Burnout. And uh, you'd think with a racing game, that's pretty much it. You do a series of races, you unlock a bunch of cars, you race. And then the one that was out in the PS3 generation was called Burnout Paradise. It was an open-world car racing game, uh, which you started missions by going through intersections uh, and pressing a button. And it was just like, so now everything's an open world. And and to a certain extent, that is that is the way that it is. And that the cinematic integrative experience of computer games is not like the cinematic integrative experience of films in that like things like Metal Gear Solid which paved the way gave you cinematic scenes and things that evoked cinema in a computer game but were eventually essentially just a computer game in computer games cinematicness is a quality of the environment and the surroundings and you have whole troves of the internet and even the twitch channel and what have you although much of that is about watching people play a game in a particular way but they have like people who spend time going around photographing virtual environments using virtual cameras then getting the pictures out and posting them online and trying to make the find the beauty the aesthetic beauty inside the environment. Yeah. And so it turns out that the cinematic quality of computer games is is in the eye of the the player, 
not, which is entirely appropriate, not in the eye of a director or third party. You should, you could say we're, I mean, this is just all part of the process, isn't it? You know, where computer games started and it was a very, you know, you, you're a very narrow scope of what, what control you had. You know, I mean, literally you've got Pong and you've got a couple of controllers and the more that the interface becomes more, you can, your character becomes, is able to do more things, the more the player will get frustrated if they are hemmed in by the game where they feel like they just have to keep repeat the same thing endlessly. And so, you know, we've all played those games where you just have to keep to get to the next level. I'm just going to keep, go through it all again. And those, that, thankfully, that aspect is being removed. And now we have these, you know, games where you kind of make your own story up. You know, yes, and, and I'm sure there'll be even further developments of that that will be will have the ability and the technology. To really, because at the moment we have the sandbox idea, you know, where their whole story will un, will un, will unfold, and we can choose what order things happen in, and we can even get different endings depending on our actions. However, there will be a come a time where we we will almost feel like the game will write itself around all of our actions, and every person's experience will be radically different. I mean, you get a bit of that really with uh, the Viking game, which I, my, my brain's gone on where you play a character in a... It's a role-playing game, essentially, where you can develop your character. I mean, I know people who play the game several times over with numerous characters because you have so flexibility of what your character can become that you can play, and it's so massive. Oh, are you but, talking about Skyrim? Skyrim, that's it. Skyrim. Oh. There's so, it's such a massive world that you can't possibly complete all of the game doing everything with the same character. It's just, you know, and the fact that... There are uh, engines that work in it that will generate adventures and things for you to do randomly. So the point is that there might be a general plot, but you, how you get there is very, very individual. And, and, you know, I say in the future, even that plot might even, you might be able to completely radically have free reign over where you go. I mean, that's quite exciting for players who like that. I mean, a lot of players will like, will still like the constraints of, you know, a more focused game and enjoy that experience. But the point is that the, the way things are going, I think, is is opening up games, make, you know, they becoming something else. I mean, I think it's... I, I think we're in an exciting time. I think that, yeah, I mean, the, the Shadow of Mordor Nemesis system, which I yeah. haven't counted yet, is another step in that direction. Expect <laughs> more games to rip that off and have this uh, evolving set of enemies that you, you have to defeat and stuff like that. I mean, yes, the, 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 it's getting to a place which uh, I think, you know, you couldn't really have dreamt of back in the day when, when we were young and it was all about Manic Miner and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so yes, there it is. Uh, we have taken a quick tromp through. Very quick. We haven't we haven't talked about Portal. We haven't talked about you know right. the various slew of first person shooters that defined as genre as well. Half Life, Call of Duty, Modern Warfare. You know it, it was it was the and you know uh, Fallout Three. These were huge games. Well, I, well I, I think I have to restrict myself to things that I've actually experienced. Now I did play Fallout Three. I didn't care for it. But you liked it, didn't you, Justin? Oh yes, yes. In fact, I prefer it the, than Skyrim actually, just because I love the, I love the setting. You know, you give me that kind of diesel punk kind of satire of, you know, fifties um, kind of American. I will chew that stuff up. 
So this uh, it is enormous, and I, um, I I believe I might not have even completed that one. I played it a lot and went, I'm probably done now. I played a lot of this, and we'll come back to it later. And you get so many expansions that you just keep going on and on and on, and the monsters you encounter, the random things, are all gen- based on your level. So if you keep going up, you'll keep being challenged. So it's kind of never-ending in some ways. Uh, it is stunning. It is kind of the, the level of detail is incredible. I mean, pretty much, you know, everything you can pick up and carry around and do whatever you want with and convert into something it is, it is, you know, pretty amazing. Uh, and definitely, you know, Skyrim is the, uh, uh, the spiritual successor of that. But because it's a kind of a fantasy Viking world, it's not, I don't like it as much because I prefer the world and I'm looking forward to the next incarnation of it. Um, for that, for what the hell that will be? Um, massive games, yeah. I, I mean, I pretty much decided once I started playing these things that sandbox games are absolutely what I love the most. I think there's there's going to be a point at which uh, the idea that of, of sandbox game is just going to be well, that's kind of a game, really, isn't it? It's not. There's not going to be if everything's moving towards that, very possibly. I mean, yeah. the thing about it is that the, you do, there is still going to be sports sims and, yeah. you know, car games and, you know, things like that. But I think overall, uh, in games, wherever you've got a character who is doing heroic stuff, the idea of, um, you know, just working your way through levels of enemies, punching them in the face, is starting to lose currency to... The idea of well, being able to wander around. It's in- format, isn't it? It's now going on to um, tablets and phones. People are finding that that kind of stuff is now fine as a little distraction. And they don't mind yeah. the repetitiveness of it because they're doing it when they're in a queue or on the bus. Yeah. Uh, um, it's not their, like, be all end or that's what their game is. So when they are, when they do get their Xbox out or PlayStation 3 or whatever, or whatever um, then they're looking for something maybe a little bit more challenging or just a little, you know something that gives them a bit more freedom. Of course, we're all, at the moment, time and management is what it's about. You would, it's better, I think people prefer a game where, it, where rather than they feel compelled to finish the next level, they can take their time and they can be more casual if they want to, or they could take the weekend off and play it to their heart's content. Indeed. Uh, and, you know, in that way, all media is becoming like that, where we, we as individuals have more control of, of when and what we do with our time. Uh, so yeah, so that's, um, yeah, I mean, you, so, yeah, to answer the thing about first person shooters, I mean, yes, I suppose first person shooter is the other thing that happens. Uh, I think they, the way that it goes is you get sort of open, open world single player games where it's a person versus this gigantic adventure playground versus online play, which is a bit more online-y, which might have a single player campaign tacked onto the back of it. They're now trying, of course, to integrate open world and online play. I'm, yeah. I'm not sure that's the way to go, but maybe that's a conversation for another day. Uh, one question that I l- lingers and would be a great place to stop is, Ian, do you think you will ever come back to the world of the console? You know, finding things that will tempt me to do... Cause it's a big outlay. It's a barrier to entry buying a console. So that's kind of the yeah, thing. I've always, been, I've always been a late adopter. And the advantage of that is that you come in like a couple of years after the thing, you can pick it up cheaper. Certainly when it, like now, if they're being replaced, people are selling them. 
But it also means that you can always buy an abundance of second-hand games. I've never bought a, a very rarely will I buy a full-price game anyway. So I've never found computer games. Yeah, uh, I, I have to totally agree with that. Hugely expensive. I, you know, I mean, okay, the most, you know, I mean, I, I maybe bought the Xbox for like 150 quid. Um, but I never spend more than seven or eight pound on a game. Uh, you know, before a, a big deciding factor in what game I was going to get is if I was following a particular series of games. A lot of the sure. franchises I followed have died out, and I'm happy to adopt a new one. It's just the, th- the thing these days. You know, if you're really interested in the ongoing storyline of a video game series, which is a thing, then we have YouTube these days, which spares you the cost of having to buy and play all the way through Metal Gear Solid 4. Uh, So you can just watch the cutscenes, thank God. Well, yeah, Metal Gear Solid 4, I would kind of tend to be. I have that ready to play. I just haven't been, haven't been courageous enough to put it in the, in the game. Yeah, just try it. Go to the bathroom before you put it on. For me, I get excited by what the two new technologies bring, you know. I mean, I'm not sure, you know, I'm waiting for the next generation because I can't see much leap up, right, until the games do really amazing things. But there was a very, very distinctive step up, certainly from GameCube to Xbox 360. You know, that generation, I could see people playing it. I'm like, I was really hungry to kind of see. So, um you know, there is, there will come a point where that stuff that you'll, you know, World of Warcraft will look kind of clunky and... It looks kind of clunky now. It's, it's, a, it's a low spec it, game. There, it just, you know, there is, I mean, I don't know. It depends what you want out of a game, really. I mean, I like a beautiful cinematic experience. And so what, you know, games you can do now, you know, you do feel like you're completely immersed in these, these crazy environments. And I love that. I love that attention to detail. Um, and I like, I love the, um, seeing that progression. So I will always look for another console. I will wait until it's reasonable, but I will always get, because I know that it's like, you know, watching film technology, you go, you, you, you look back at stuff and go, well, that's looking a bit ropey now. So I will always look to what's going to do as long as it's suitably impressive and they're doing new things with it. Personally, uh, I, I, I like consoles because when I set it to PC, I feel I should be doing something useful. So I, I don't like PC gaming, I have to say, no. I love Thief. I played that on a computer when I didn't have a console. But I don't like, I like sitting on a couch. Um, I like relaxing. And you're right, it, he's like, this isn't work, this is play. Whereas, um, yeah, playing games, no, that would be a bad thing. The, uh, one of the, the just, there's like two factors. Well, the first is I'm, I'm thoroughly out of practice with the habit of getting on your game console and just having fun there. It's like, when we're we going to squeeze that in is what I'm thinking these days. And it's also the fact that by moving to Australia, I hit a big reset button on, on my friends. So I, I lost yeah. the kind of peer group that also played games as well. Uh, so it's, it would, it would feel like me in isolation playing on my console. I know I have friends who say, get this console, then we can play games together across the internet. So I do that now. Welcome World of Warcraft. I don't know. Uh, it's a difficult. Actually, when I got it, but I just play games on my own. I didn't, yeah. you know, there, I prefer to as well, like you. You've got Xbox, you've got Xbox, but it's actually incredibly inconvenient to hook up that and yeah. you just spend time with those people rather than trying to arrange just for an hour or two, when you're sat at home, each person, you might as well just go round there. <laughs> I well, of course, <laughs> well, of course, the other thing is, of course, that uh, this leads to this problem that 
South Park uh, based an entire trilogy of episodes around where a lot of people are trying to decide which of the two consoles they're going yeah. to buy so yeah. that they could all play the same thing together. For Justin and I have no PlayStation 3 friends. No. None. Not one. Because I don't know anyone... Well, I do know people with PlayStation 3. And to be honest, we've said, oh, we should be PlayStation 3 friends. And then we just haven't <laughs> got round to it. Well, uh, but, but you know what? I don't think it'd make any difference because I've got most of my friends have got Xbox 360s and I have never, never played online with them because I just go around the house and play a game if I feel inclined to do so. I don't think it's a big thing, to be honest. Well, it will be in the next generation because, of course, now we have things like I mean, the first salvo is Destiny where yeah. they, you know, you do all get together to play a game together on a console. Uh, Destiny... I'm not really, I don't, I'm not really that keen on the concept of it, but that's the kind of Borderlands came before that. So yeah, cooperative games. I suppose people like that. I mean, I, I'm not, I don't care really because I, I game when I fit it around my time and, and I don't want to have to deal with organizing, going and seeing people and sorting that out. I just go, you know what? I need a bit of stress relief. I'll put this on for, sure. for a couple of hours. That's how I, that's how I work with games. So I, um, however, um, I know a lot of people love that cooperative aspect, but they tend to do it more while they're there. They don't really do it in their own house, sat playing online with their friends. You know what I mean? Uh, well, this is the youngs people. I've met a few youngs people yes. recently. Well, they're all they, they spend their lives on the internet. So I yeah, so there we go. All right, cool. Well, I think that, that uh, wraps up uh, definitely at the end there with various levels of commodginosity coming out <laughs> from the 80s. And what more would you expect from the 80s kids than 80s attitudes, which is what's <laughs> happening now? So, uh, yeah, yes. we'll be back to films next time. And uh, if people want to go and tell us why we should all just get hit with the program, buy ourselves a new Xbox and pay all the monies and play video games together, where might they go to berate us thus, Ian? Well, one place you can go to complain about kids being on the internet these days is Facebook, which you can, well, our page on our Facebook forward slash Revenge of the 80s Kids, and that's 80s as in numbers, so 80s. Uh, please go there and like our page and berate us for not mentioning Angry Birds. But uh, podcasts are what it's all about, so for those points, we're browsed towards 80s Kids, and that's 80s as in letters, so E-I-G-H-D-I-S kids.bondaband.com. Please go there and subscribe to our podcast using the podcast aggregate of your choice or download direct to your PC for dark reasons of your own if you like PC podcast listening to maybe you don't uh, anyway uh, this is anywhere our most recent podcast can be found for the legacy of our back catalogue of uh, podcasts you must go to uh, leostableford.com where you uh, can also find my article on why Flappy Bird is the most cinematic game experience that has ever existed or maybe you can't because it's not. Uh, <laughs> but if people want to find a picture that is remarkably better than the graphics of Flappy Bird, where might they go to see such a picture? See, the stuff I do when I haven't just bought a new game, so that therefore I'm in a productive mood um, on my DeviantArt page, which is justinwyatt.deviantart.com. And uh, I think that uh, just about is up. So I'm going off to level up now. Uh, <laughs> what are you guys doing with the rest of your uh, day or evening? Uh, I've got some monsters to grind. I need to get up to the next level, so I'm just going to go out there and just whittle, whittle some materials by hitting a fake stone axe into some rock. Well, I'm going to group enough. up and go down a dungeon and go get some fat loot because I need new spaulders for my paladin. <laughs> wow. And 
on that bombshell, we shall <laughs> leave you. Bye. <laughs> Goodbye. Good game.